what I'd like to talk about, finish up the weekend today, and really, I'm going to finish up the weekend tomorrow, um, going through 1 Peter 3, 7. But um, I want to talk about reaching the next generation of men, which uh, sometimes people might say, well, it's called, you know, how to raise masculine sons, but it's really more just how are, how are we going to invest in the next generation of young men because let's just face it, all of us in this room are going to die and uh, we're going to leave something behind and some of us are going to die sooner rather than others and it's not always about age, it's just God in his providence does what he wants to do. I'd like to start by drawing a diagram <coughs> And this diagram uh, is my understanding of how a boy becomes a man. It's complicated. Uh, a lot of people make jokes about men, and they say they're so simple, just feed them and clothe them and pat them on the head every now and then. But actually, the process of becoming, going from boy to man is actually very complicated. <clears throat> Let me show you why. <clears throat> All right, so let's say you have a mom over here. And let's just say uh, she starts out, let's just say like we did, so you got a girl and a boy. Let's just say they're twins. And then you got dad over here. And this is not a diagram about how dad might be involved with the kids. This is about identity. So for a girl to grow up and be a woman, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple process. She starts, she starts very close, so they're born. And for both the boy and the girl, there's a high level of nurture. There's a high level of identification with the mom. Uh, in in many cases, maybe most cases, I mean, she's, her own body is designed to feed them. And so there's a high level of attachment going on here and a very high level of identification. Even though they're very small, they're highly identified. <clears throat> And dad's there, and he's loving these kids, and he's hanging on to them and kissing them and hugging them. But in terms of who they identify with the most, it is clearly her. So for a girl to become a woman, she starts here and basically stays here in terms of her identity. She, her dad is involved, and he loves her. But in terms of who is she looking to the most on what it means to be a woman, well, of course, she's looking to her mom. For a boy, it's complicated because it some point a boy has to say I am not this I am that and he has to make a break he has to make a break from who he's identifying with the most here now at some point he realizes wait a minute I'm one of these I'm not one of these I'm one of these and he begins to identify more with him than with her. Now, this is not a rejection of his mother. That's not what this is all about. This isn't about disrespect or rejection. <clears throat> it's about identification. Now, the challenge is, when does this happen? Because there's not just some, you know, at 17 years and 364 days, the next day, boom, he pulls a cord, and he's, now he's a man. He's identifying with a dad. It starts very early. And this process can get complicated by several ways. What if, what if she's not ready for it? <clears throat> what if she just hasn't thought it through? What if she's not ready for it? I remember coming home one day and <clears throat> Gunner was about four years old or so. 
And uh, I walked in and I could tell immediately that my wife had been crying. Now, every man can tell when his wife has been crying. And so I walk in the door, she's been crying. I, you know, so I say, why are you crying? She said, well, it's Gunner. Well, what did Gunner do? <clears throat> well, he didn't really do anything. But this morning when we were going to watch Sesame Street, he, uh, instead of crawling up in my lap like he usually did, he said he wanted to sit in your chair. I said, was he... Was he disrespectful? No. Was he mad? No. He just said, I want to sit in dad's chair. I said, oh. I said, well, you know what's happening, right? What? What? Like, she, you know, she was worried she did something wrong. I said, uh, he's becoming a man. That's ridiculous, she says. He's not becoming, what do you mean he's becoming a man? I said, no, wait a minute. I didn't say he's ready to go get a vocation and support a family. He's four. But he is starting to identify with me in a way that you might not have counted on it. And maybe, it's not that you hadn't counted on it, but it's maybe earlier than you counted on Because at some point, right, boys stop sitting in their mother's lap. They just do. My mom and dad visited recently, and I didn't sit in my mother's lap one time. <laughs> She's 71 years old, and I'm 46. That ain't going to happen. <clears throat> they stop holding their mother's hands, right? They stop holding your hand. They, they do. I, I mean, I remember distinctly, I mean, I, I used to love walking around Home Depot and bring the little boys when they were little, and they'd just instinctively reach up and grab my hand, and we're walking around Home Depot holding hands, and they're five, six. But eventually, they don't reach up anymore. Why? Because they're becoming a man. They just, they, they look around them, and they think, you know what? Because again, my mom and dad visited recently, and my dad and I didn't hold hands the whole time. We did walk around Home Depot, well, we didn't hold hands while we were doing it. And eventually, it's just, why? Because at least in our culture, now in some cultures, it actually is acceptable for men to do that. So I'm, I'm using it as an American anal- uh, illustration. But <clears throat> my boys started to realize, man, every time grandpa comes to town, they don't hold hands. I don't think men hold hands. They're becoming a man, and they just, they don't reach up anymore. But if she's not ready, <clears throat> what can she do? Oh, no, no, Gunner, you're not too old to sit. You sit in mommy's lap. You get in this. You get in here. Well, I don't think that's going to ruin him. But you just need to let him. It's a process. And he's just starting the process. And it happens at three and four. With little things here and little things there, he's starting to identify. So tell me what's happening. Nine-year-old boy playing baseball, hits the ball, comes running around first. Goes for second, he slides in a second, there's a close play, he collides with a second baseman, they both go down, but it's clear nobody's hurt, they stand up, and they're dusting themselves off, and everybody, nobody's unconscious, nobody's bleeding, and a mom yells from the stands, are you okay, Johnny? And he says, I'm fine. Now, what's he mad about? I mean, honestly, I mean, she didn't say, I mean, she's not being mean, she didn't say, I hope you got hurt, I mean, what, she's, are you okay, Johnny? Why is he mad? Well, <clears throat> because he's not sophisticated enough to even know what's happening, right? He, he can't say, Mom, listen, uh, what you just did actually just violated every sense of masculinity I have on every bone of my body. <laughs> he doesn't even know why it made him mad. He's just becoming a man, and what he realizes is, is that, man, when Dad falls down and does stuff like that, Mom actually laughs. She didn't yell at her, are you okay? She thinks it's funny. <laughs> Are you okay, honey? She said, my wife hadn't asked me that in decades, right? I mean, this. 
Now, there, in that case, there'd be two conversations I would have. I'd have a conversation with little Johnny. I'd pull him aside and say, let me tell you something, son. I don't care. If your mother ran out there with a stretcher and a bag of gauze, you don't yell at her and talk to her like that, right? Because we're not going to tolerate disrespect. That is not what we're going to tolerate. It, it shows up as disrespect because these boys aren't sophisticated enough to know why. That, that just, it was just made him mad. He didn't even know why because last year he didn't do that, right? Last year, she yelled out there, are you okay, Johnny? And he said, I'm okay, Mom. I'm okay. You know, what, what happened in the year? He's just, he's starting to identify with his father and realize there are some things that go with manhood. And some of them are cultural. But either way, he's in this culture. So he's observing what is or is not manly and what he's observing in his father. And the second conversation that I would have was with my wife. Say, listen, I talked to Johnny. I'm not going to let him talk to you that way, but. We just need to be on the lookout for these little things like this that allow him to make the process of going from boy to man. <clears throat> so if she's, not, if she's not ready, because sometimes she might just say, I'm not, I'm not ready for him to grow up. And I know that a lot of us are that way. I mean, I keep joking around. I mean, my daughter, I do want my kids to move out. I mean, not because I don't love them. It's just... Um, you and I were talking about just, you know, the arrow's in the hands of a warrior, right? I mean, that's the whole point of it. Eventually, you fire them out there. And the beauty of that analogy of arrows in the hand of a warrior, the beauty of that is, uh, I was on a panel discussion one time, and a guy <clears throat> got all emotional, and he said, you only get one shot. They're arrows. You just only, you can only fire them out there one time. Well, that's actually not true, uh, because I asked the guy, I said, have you ever, you ever been bow hunting? He said, no. I said, yeah. I said, here's how it works. I said, you never fire that arrow out the first time. <laughs> if you do, you're crazy. That, that arrow's been fired about 150 times into a target. I know where that thing's going. Now, especially a warrior, right? A warrior would never go into battle having never fired that arrow. Uh, his whole life is on the line. That guy has actually made the arrow himself and he's sharpened it, and he's fired it into some target at some point, so he knows where it's going. So you get a lot of test flights. Every time you send them anywhere, it's a test flight. You send them to grandma's house, that's a test flight. You send them to baseball practice, that's a test flight. You get hundreds, maybe thousands of test flights to observe them in all sorts of situations to see where that arrow's going, right? You fire practice rounds all the time with those arrows. And eventually, you launch them. And they don't come back. That's the plan, right? Eventually, you launch them out there. And it's, it's an act of war. I'm sending them out there. I'm sending them out there as an act of war so that they'll do battle for Christ wherever they are. And I want them to go out there. That's why I told my teenage daughter, who's very sweet. She's very sweet. And uh, she said, Daddy, wouldn't it be great if I got married and then I lived in the house two doors down, <clears throat> I said, Georgia, this is the truth. I said, if I found out you and your husband were getting ready to build, buy the house two doors down, I would buy it out from under you and burn it to the ground. All right? I got this neighborhood covered. I want you to go do something for God somewhere else. All right? And not to mention, don't tempt me. I'm going to try to be a good father-in-law, but don't stick that guy two doors down from me right under my nose. All right? I'm going to be in his business like you've never seen. Get out of here. Go do something. You're supposed to go. <clears throat> we want them to, and I'm, I'm probably going to be sad to see them go just because I love them and I love being around them. They're, fun. They're a fun group of people, but they got to go. 
mean, what if, what if she just doesn't want it to happen? It's just a shepherding opportunity. You don't be mad at her. She's not a bad person. She's probably an incredible mother, all right? And that's what God wired her to do. But that's why the Bible doesn't talk a lot about generic parenting. It's a lot about mothers and fathers, mothering and fathering. Because everybody, the mother and the father are bringing two different things to the table. That's, that's why we keep saying it takes a mother and a father. And when, when that isn't there, it complicates it. It doesn't ruin everything. It's not insurmountable. 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, uh, Romans 3, Romans 6. I mean, God... In, in Christ covers a multitude of sins. And so this is not doomsday, but it does complicate it. What happens if this guy's not there? That complicates it. Many of you probably grew up in a home <clears throat> where he wasn't there. It doesn't ruin everything, but surely you would admit it just complicates things. If he's not there, it just complicates it. So now there, he's not here. This guy, this guy is saying, I know I'm not one of these, but, and I know I'm one of these, but where is he? He's not right there to readily be observed. And so it's a great opportunity for the church to step in and stand in the gap. I'm sure you have, you have young men in your church who are growing up without dads. And look at all these men in here. Look at all these men in here. Next time you go fishing, next time you go <clears throat> to a ball game, think it through. Because what this boy needs is somebody in this church. Maybe somebody's. Maybe just, he just needs to be invited into the world of men in a group situation. He just needs to be able to see, okay, this is what that is. This is what, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I am. It is one of the reasons why gangs keep popping up. And gangs are, are not just an inner city problem anymore. They're in rural towns everywhere. You know why? It, part of it is connected to the, to the fatherless culture that we're living in because these young men want to be a man when they grow up. What does every boy want to be when he grows up? A man. He just instinctively, God wired it in there. He knows. He sees what they look like and what they do, and he wants to be one. The problem is he, he needs somebody along the way to tell him as he's becoming one, that he's becoming one, that he's on target or not on target. And so what a gang does is very simple. It, it's, it's sinful and it's heinous, but it's very simple. They tell these young men when they become men. They're the ones that tell them, and they define it in all the wrong ways. If you do these many bad things, and if you do th this type of bad thing, then, then you're in. And when you're in, you're a man. That's what you are. You're a man, and that's what, that's what all, every, every young man is craving to know. Is he becoming one? Is he on the right track? That's, that's why, <clears throat> uh, you know, all this redefinition of marriage and all sorts of things, I mean, there's, there is... Uh, the, God set it up a certain way for a certain reason. I don't pretend to know all of them. There are all sorts of hidden reasons in the way God does or doesn't do things. But in terms of observation in the process of boys becoming men, this is, this is one, of the <clears throat> one of the challenges. If he's not there, or if he's there and just not there emotionally, he might be there physically, but he's not there emotionally. you just got to be all there. And so that's why, that's why I tell men all the time, look, don't, don't, uh, don't underestimate this dynamic. Don't underestimate it. Stand in the gap for somebody else, another young man that might not have a dad. Be faithful as a dad in your own context. Encourage these young men, you older men, encourage these young men to stay married. Encourage these young men to work on their marriages. Encourage these men to make the right investments in their children. It, it is, and, and this isn't just... <coughs> It isn't just so we'll have good boys, right? 
That's not what we're after. We're not after good boys. Uh, this, uh, this all has a process. It's, it's connected to the local church. And the mission of the local church is what? Go ye therefore into all the nations, right? So it's missiological. Go in there, go to the, all the nations. Uh, an unhealthy church does unhealthy things. A healthy church does healthy things. And they, they focus on the Great Commission and they focus on reaching the, the nations with the gospel. And that's what this is about. So it's not just, we just want sweeter boys. In fact, I might argue, I don't need sweeter boys. I need more courageous boys. I need boys that are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, but I need them to have courage because every boy, almost every boy, is going to grow up and be something. And as I said, maybe this morning, I can't, if it was this morning or yesterday, but most of our boys are going to grow up and be married. That's just the pattern. And most of them are going to be husbands. And then <clears throat> the second part of that is typically, not everybody, but typically, then their kids. They're going to be husbands and fathers. Just typical, the typical projection. They're going to be husbands and they're going to be fathers. Bi biologically or through adoption, they're going to end up raising children. And so as a husband and father, what are my boys going to need, going to have to be? They're going to be leaders, providers, and protectors. We've talked about that. Well, then the, the third area is right below that is in, well, then what characteristics are they? We've already talked about Ephesians 5. I mean, what kind of characteristics, what kind of things are you going to need to cultivate in your life in order to be a good leader, provider, and protector? Well, it, then we're getting into language like courage, faithfulness, commitment, what I would call resilience or gospel Christ-like resilience. You get knocked down, you get back up again. You get knocked down, you get back up again. These are all biblical qualities that are there. And then the fourth thing, which is where a lot of people have a hard time getting to, is then what exactly am I going to do in my home to help develop courageous boys? Because uh, in a, in a post-industrial revolution age, <clears throat> fathers spend less time with their sons than ever before. In, in most cases, now some of you may be farmers, some of you may have jobs that, and vocations that your sons actually can accompany you along, but most of us just don't. And then, even if I could bring my boys to my office every day, I mean, that's not very compelling, right? I mean, you know, they're watching me study and read and plan ahead for academic uh, programs and all sorts of stuff. So in a post-industrial revolution age, I don't, I don't get the same amount of time <clears throat> with, with my sons in particular to, to observe whether or not they're developing courage and character. And so we have to put them in situations and we have to create opportunities for that to occur. And one of those ways is <clears throat> um, first, you know, to sort of have a compelling vision for how this happens and then what you think the characteristics are, but then also uh, what I would call uh, you need to create moments of adventure, danger, valor. Now, they don't have to be real. They just have to be perceived. They don't have to be real. Let me give you an example. When our boys were much smaller, we would go camping, and we would go to a state park, and we'd camp. <clears throat> and I remember distinctly the first time I did this. I've done this many times after since they were when they were little. But the first time we went hiking, it was on a trail, and I pulled everybody together. It was Gunner Fisher in Georgia and Dana, my wife. And I said, all right, here's the situation. Here's what's going to happen if we see a bear. Now, 
We're in General Butler State Park right outside of Louisville, Kentucky. We're not going to see a bear, all right? If I actually thought we were going to see a bear, I'm not dragging these little kids on the trail, all right? So we're not going to see a bear. There isn't a bear within 10 miles of this place. That doesn't matter. They don't need to know that. I'm the only one that needs to know that. So I say, here's what we're going to do if we see a bear. I'm the biggest. I'm the strongest. I got the biggest knife. I'm going in first. Now, Gunner, you got your pocket knife? Yes, sir. All right, he's, he's eight years old, seven years old. Yes, sir, I got it. Is that big? I got it. That's all right. And here's the deal. I've never fought a bear before. Um, I got a little bit of a plan, but I don't really know if it's a good plan. So I may go down in this process. And so what happens is if I go down, you're next in line. You go in after the bear. Yes, sir. Now, Fisher's six years old. His knife, I mean, I don't even, it, it's, it might have even been plastic. I don't know, but... Fisher, you got your knife? Yes, sir. His eyes are this big around now. Yes, sir. That's right. Now, here's the deal. If Gunner goes down, you're next. I don't think that knife is really going to do any good, but hopefully Gunner and I will have worn the bear down enough, and you can just take him out. <clears throat> but then I said this to Dana and George. I said, girls, while Fisher's getting eaten, you run like crazy. All right? <laughs> Fisher's the final distraction. Now listen to this. This, is, this doesn't even make sense, does it? Because now that whole, that whole hike, they want to see a bear. They think, Dad, 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 I think I see a bear. No, that's a butterfly, but that was closer. <laughs> Starts with the same letter, but there, there's no bear, son. Don't worry. Okay. Dad, I think I see one. No. They were amped up because they're boys. But what do they learn? In a, in a full situation that's fully safe, there's really no real danger here, but it's perceived danger. And what are they really learning? The boys go down while the girls go free. That's what they're learning. And that's just a fundamental lesson for a young man to have cultivated into his heart. When, so when he becomes a man, that's fundamental. He's, they're not going to be asking a woman in the airport to hug, hug him and hold him when there's a crisis. Why? Because it's just built into him. It's wired in. But you've got to wire it in like that because you can't, you can't, you can't wait for it just to naturally occur, but is because in our culture, it just doesn't naturally occur anymore. <clears throat> in fact, there will be people that think that's just terrible. Why didn't I teach the girls to protect the boys? Uh, so one time we were camping and a sleeping bag fell down into this little ditch. It, it was a little, I mean, it's like 12 feet deep. It's not a, but that didn't seem adventuresome enough. So I called it a ridge. I said, boys. He said, that's called a ridge down there, and there's mama's sleeping bags down in there. We're not letting mama sleep on the floor, so you're going to have to go down there and get it. Now, here's the deal. I don't know what's down there. I, don't, I have no idea what's down in there. It could be an anaconda in there. I don't know. No, I mean, we're not in Africa. There's no anaconda. There's not even a grass snake in there. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> we might find the bones of the last guy that went down there. I don't know. But I amped it up, so these boys just thought they were, they were scaling Mount Everest, and they went down there. And they got that sleeping bag, and they came back. They talked about it literally for years. <laughs> Dad, Dad, you remember that time we went down on that ridge? Whew, I know. I can't believe we're here to talk about it. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Until Gunner finally got old enough to realize, wait a minute. He said, Dad, that was nothing. That wasn't even. I said, I know, but it already had its way in your heart. I, I already got all my use out of it. Now it doesn't matter what you think about it. You spent the last three years bragging about it. <clears throat> This is my opinion. I do believe it is connected to Ephesians 5, but I'm not going to make it sound like it's in there. I do think we're overprotecting our boys. I think we're, our boys are being overmothered. And that's not our wives' fault. 
All right, that's, that's, that's largely our fault, okay? Because a lot of times men lack the confidence to speak into the parenting element because it just sounds like, I mean, because let's, I mean, pro- probably most of you, unless you had little, little brothers or sisters growing up, I mean, you hadn't done a whole lot of babysitting. I mean, I, I hadn't done a whole, I didn't do any babysitting in my whole life. And so I'm 20, 28 years old, I get this kid, and I do feel like I don't know anything about it, right? I mean, and she does. She's been babysitting her whole life, and I think God just instinctively gave her something that I don't know. But there are some things you just know. My wife is smarter than me in almost every regard except one. There is no way she knows more about what it means to be a boy than I do. No way. No way she does. I got her hands down on that one, all right? And she readily admits it. Yep, you got me on that one. We just have to speak into it with confidence. Because this is, this is the, the idea of overprotecting and overmothering our boys is a missiological issue for me because what happens <clears throat> when parents sort of get into this mode where everything is about making sure nobody gets hurt? Don't jump that bike. Don't climb that tree. Why, why can't I climb the tree? Because you might get what? Hurt. Well, you know what? I don't, I don't recommend that a, that a five-year-old climb an 80-foot tree, but climbing a five-foot tree, what is going to happen? He might fall. And what might happen? He might get hurt. But if we keep telling our boys, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, things that, things that 40 years ago we would have just put in the category of just typical boyhood. I'm not talking about crazy stuff and fraternity pranks and jumping off of buildings into a pool and swallowing goldfish. I'm just t- saying, climb a tree? I mean, that, that's not a fraternity prank. That actually used to be a part of the boyhood experience of almost every boy. And what did he gain out of it? He gained the idea that there are some things worth taking a risk for. The experience of the success of getting to that fourth branch and looking down over your whole kingdom, five feet off the ground. We've got it set up so our kids can't even ride their bike without shin guards and knee pads and elbow pads and everything else and then a an 800 number counselor to call whenever they fall off to get them back on. I mean, and again, I'm not, I, I want you to hear me loud and clear of, of this weekend. I'm not talking about Rambo and Commando. I'm not talking about raising the next John Wayne just for the, for the I just, I'm not trying to raise boys with swagger. That's, that, I don't care about that. That's not what this is about. It's not about swagger. It's about the mission field, because i got to tell you, there are thousands of unreached people groups out there in some very dangerous places. And one day, your church, your pastors, I know there are multiple churches represented here, your pastors are going to, there's going to be an opportunity to reach an unreached people group, and you're going to be in the pulpit, and they're going to say, guys, we need some young men, and we preferably need some single young men, because this could be dangerous, and we don't want to involve a family right now, but we need some young men that are willing to go to this particular place and see what they need and then come back and help us put a strategy together to reach this unreached people group. And there is no way that kid is raising his hand if he's been told his whole life, don't even climb that tree, don't ride your bike, and don't do anything that might get you hurt. Do you see the projection there? It's not, it is not just so that they can win a fight one day and stick up for the girl next door. That, the, the sticking up for the girl next door would be nice, but that isn't even what I have in mind. That, that would be part of it. <clears throat> but what I have in mind is reaching the nations, and it takes courage. 
And it's going to take a young man that has been told all of his life, climb that tree. And guess what? Yeah, you might fall out of that tree and you might break your arm. And guess what's going to happen then? We have these places called emergency rooms and they're staffed with doctors. And they're actually there for that reason. <clears throat> we were in Charleston, South Carolina, and I saw one of the greatest billboards. I just, I would go to this hospital even if they weren't any good. Because here's what the, the billboard said. Such and such emergency room, because boys will be boys. Now, I would just go there just to support them, right? <laughs> just to give them my insurance money and whatever else I got to give them. Because it's just right there. That is true. Because that's what, yeah, you break your arm, you go, and you go to the emergency room, and they set your arm, they put a cast on it, and then six weeks or so later, you're back in business, and you're climbing the same tree. Because <clears throat> boys... A boy can recover from a broken bone. It's hard to recover from over being over-mothered, smothered, overprotected, and making him believe that the most important thing is not getting hurt. <clears throat> my, I love, my wife grew up with a great dad and mom. My wife grew up spearfishing Barracuda with her father, scuba diving. So she already came to me with a little sense of adventure, okay? So I, I'm not taking uh, half the credit for her... <clears throat> willingness to uh, to do things, but still, she didn't have a brother. Her dad was a was a was a good man. Still is. He's still alive. But there have been plenty of times when she'll call me and say, one time Fisher was in the treehouse in the backyard, and he had a rope. She said Fisher's got a rope tied to the tree, and then the other end is tied around to his waist. <laughs> so we know what's coming, right? And he said, she said. Should I wait for you to get home for this? <clears throat> I said, yes, not because you can't handle it, but because I really want to see this, all right? This is just, because <clears throat> I'm not going to stop him from doing it. I'm just not. Because it's not a 50-foot treehouse, okay? It's just, it's not, this is, we all know what's going to happen, right? So he gets there, I come home, and he's smiling. He says, you ready, Dad? I said, son, I've been waiting all day for this. He says, here I go. I said, Okay. And he jumps out and, bam, flat on the ground. You know what he gets up and he says, I think the rope is too long. Oh, you think? <laughs> no, no engineering career for you, my friend. We're going to go ahead and take that off the list. <laughs> I mean, you all, every one of you knew what was going to happen. That kid, he didn't calculate any length of rope. And nobody got out a measuring tape and all that. He just, he thinks he's, you know what he says? He says, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to get it right this time. Okay, buddy. And it hurt a little more than he anticipated when the, boom, he did get the right length of the rope, but it wasn't quite the smooth Superman feel. It's all right. <clears throat> He's 15 now. And that kid is courageous. I'm just telling you, he'll do anything, try anything. And I don't mean like jumping off things. He's the first one. I mean, most 15-year-old boys are a little reticent to go knock on somebody's door and invite him to church. He just doesn't have a fear of it because he's already done all sorts of crazy things in his life, and this is just, this is nothing compared to some of the things he's done. I probably shouldn't say this on camera, but I was telling somebody earlier because I don't even know if we're allowed to do this, but we've been to the Everglades before in, a, in an airboat out in the Everglades where there's no guide. This is just a guy that owns an airboat, and we... 
We have grabbed alligators out of that water with our bare hands. That's nothing. That is nothing. He's been bit by an alligator. Fisher got bit by an alligator, grabbed an alligator out of the, out of the water in the Everglades. Now, I told him when it happened, I said, son, I know that hurts, but oh, my word. Like, you will top every story in Sunday school ever told. <laughs> I mean, some kid's going to say, I fell off my bike. And you're going to say, uh, I have been bit by an alligator. All right? Just <clears throat> He'll volunteer. Just, I'll go do it. He'll go knock on a door. So, I don't, again, this isn't just who can bench press the most and who can jump out of an airplane or whatever. It may lead to that because... I know that he is going to be one of the first ones to volunteer for whatever hard thing it is. I know what I'm doing here. And I know it means, I know it means that he's going to put himself in a potentially harmful situation that other boys might not. And those parents are going to enjoy the fact that their boy lived a long life and mine might not. I don't know. I'm praying against that. I don't want to be cavalier about that. But I can't stomach it any other way. To think that he would shirk back because I've taught him his whole life, don't get hurt. Don't do anything that might get you hurt. <clears throat> and they do crazy things. They, they do, these boys, they just do crazy things. One time, <clears throat> Fisher was younger, and I was outside, and he came around the back of the house and to where I was, and he said, Dad, have you ever eaten a live earthworm? <laughs> well, unfortunately, the answer is yes. And uh, it was a youth group stunt. I thought it would draw the crowd, you know, and everybody would fall on their knees screaming, what must I do to be saved after I did it? But <laughs> nothing happened, and I ate the live earthworm, and it was gross. But I did do it, so I said, yeah, I've eaten a live earthworm. He said, is it any good? Now, here you don't want to miss this key moment as a father. I said, son, it was delicious. <laughs> okay. It was delicious. Do not miss out on this moment. So he leaves, and he goes back. He comes back around the corner. He's got dirt all over his face. He said, you're right, Dad. It tastes awesome. <clears throat> so Gunner, he goes, and then Gunner comes around the corner. And he says, did, did you let Fisher eat an earthworm? Well, indignant, like I let Fisher drive the car, right? I mean, he's just, I said, yeah. He said, is it any good? I said, son, you have no idea how good it is. He comes back around, comes back around. Dad, you're right. It tastes awesome. Now, at this point, Gunner's twin sister, Georgia, thinks that life is coming to an end and that Everybody's going crazy. She runs in the house to tell on us, all right, to tell my wife. She's going to tell on us. <clears throat> so my wife comes out, <clears throat> and she says, uh, are you letting the boys eat earthworms? <laughs> now, again, you're in too deep. Now, you better go in with all the confidence. You better act like you just read this in a parenting book. So I just said, yeah, yes, I am. Yes, I am. That's uh, Fatherhood 101. Everybody knows this. You know, like, you don't, don't, don't let her see fear in your eyes at this point. And then she asked the question that every normal wife and mother would ask. Is that normal? She said, is that normal? I said, yeah, you'll be shocked at what these boys are willing to put in their mouth uh, over a lifetime. I mean, they're just, they're going to be, they're, curious. they're like dogs, you know, they're just curious. Let's eat it and see what it tastes like. I came home one time. <clears throat> And Fisher's waiting for me, and now he's like 10 or 11, and he's waiting on me. And I come around the corner, and he's standing there, and he's wearing shorts, but his knees, there's blood from his knees all dripping all the way down to his shoes. And it looks, his legs look like a crime scene. And it was all dried up because it had been there for hours, and he wasn't about to touch any of it because he wanted to show me. 
So I came around the corner and I said, hey, what happened? He said, uh, Isaac put a ramp in the cul-de-sac. Well, I didn't need any more explanation. Because every one of those boys in the neighborhood could have been in the basement playing Xbox. Isaac puts a ramp in the cul-de-sac, and all of a sudden all those boys feel the disturbance in the force, right? And they just come walking out of their house. Why, because they got to jump the ramp. I already knew what that meant. Isaac put the ramp out. Okay, I got it. I don't need any more explanation. I said, how did you, uh, how did you jump it? He said, I decided, <clears throat> he said, everybody was doing it on their bike. He said, I didn't think that was, that was, uh, that was big enough. So he said, I decided I was going to do it on my rollerblades. He said, so I put on my rollerblades and I went to the other end. Of, we live on a double cul-de-sac. So I went to the other end of the cul-de-sac. He said, I went as fast as I could. And he said, and I hit that ramp and I got about 10 feet in the air and I thought to myself, I have made a big mistake. <laughs> I mean, these are just lessons every boy has to learn, right? I mean, what a beautiful lesson. I said, what was your mistake? He said, I didn't even think about how I was going to land. Okay, well, no, no astronaut career for you. That, uh, <laughs> I mean, we're eliminating career choices by the week in our house. <clears throat> so, it, it, manhood, manhood is imparted by manhood. <clears throat> and that's why somebody needs to be there. Now, my wife is an, an integral part, an instrumental part in all this, because we correct the boys in the house in terms of manhood, and she's gotten really good at it. And you should encourage your wife to do it, because it's not a silver bullet in parenting boys, but again, you got to keep in mind, every boy wants to be a man, and if he thinks he's not on the right path, he will respond sometimes to that as opposed to any other thing. Now, I don't say you're, you know, you're acting like a woman. What, will, what she'll say is men don't do that. Just a simple thing. Men don't do that. They whine about doing math. And my wife will say, whoa, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh. Uh, when you grow up, you're going to have a job. And you're not going to whine about your job. Right now, your job is math. And not to mention that half the boys in the world are doing math right now. So I don't even feel sorry for you, but you're whining about your job. Do you hear your father whining about his job? No, no ma'am, I don't. That's right. Because men don't whine. They just don't whine. So men don't do what you're doing. Get in there and do math. And don't whine about it. Um, <clears throat> men don't hit women. Those boys hit their sister when they're little. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Have you ever seen your father hit me? No, man. That's right. Because men don't. And then that better be true. So. No, man. That's right. Because men don't hit women. So don't get in the habit of hitting the girls because they're going to grow up and be women. Don't do it. That's not what men do. You want to grow up and be a man? That ain't it. They respond. I'm just telling you, testosterone is a, is a powerful chemical. <clears throat> we were at a birthday party one time. If, you, if those of you that have little kids, the rule is get to the party early, drop your kid off, and go out with your wife. If you get there late, you're stunk. You're, 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 uh, you're sunk. So we got to this birthday party. We had to stay because we were late. I don't have anybody to chaperone. Rats. So I stay. Get in there. <clears throat> and I'm watching, and they have these monkey bars, and this kid that's there, he comes across the monkey bars, and his, his feet are only that far off the ground, right? So he falls. He collapses on the ground. He starts screaming like he's been shot. Ah! So <clears throat> the dad of the party 
not this kid's dad, this kid's dad is at Applebee's with his wife because they got there early, but the dad of the party <laughs> is yelling, he's hurt, he comes running across, he's hurt, he's hurt. And he calls his wife, Sandy, he's hurt. And she comes running in there, he's hurt. Look at him. Well, I saw the whole thing. There's no way this kid is hurt. So I walk over there and I just said to the kid, I said, hey, I said, move, move your leg. Do like that. Because I'm not a physician, but I have been around enough sports injuries. If you can go like that with your leg, it's probably not broken, right? So he does that. And I, I saw the whole thing. He's not hurt. I said, Caleb, you're not hurt. He stopped crying. What? I said, son, you're not hurt. I've seen hurt. That isn't it. <clears throat> get up. Go get some lemonade and play. Okay. He got up and just, I mean, it was a miracle. You know, just <laughs> come down here at the end. Huh? <clears throat> and so I walked back. My wife said, what did you do? And I said, look, he had one man telling him what reality was, that he was hurt. He needed another man to redefine reality for him. It's imparted by manhood. Manhood, is, that's why it's important for you to speak in terms of manhood and help these young men. And by young men, I mean, mean a 40-year-old talking to a 25-year-old. Help them. It is, it's just the older generation speaking in the younger generation. Everybody has somebody older than them. Everybody has somebody younger than them. And everybody should be speaking into this. But speaking in terms of manhood is not wrong. In fact, it's right. Our culture is discouraging us from talking about what does it mean to be a man because they don't want a definition. They don't want it to be defined because they want everybody to define it for themselves. But all that does is get us in, into, into unisex conversation that isn't helpful for men or women. The Bible is very clear. And the Bible is <clears throat> clear about how we should be reaching the generations with the gospel and reaching out <coughs> to this next generation of young men and boys and young men and helping them get to the point of manhood. So you have to decide. Is courage a part of this thing? I think so. Then how might, how might you in your context, in your home, and the way that you're wired up, how might you encourage courage? Because this isn't about vocation. It's not about bent. It's not about, because um, I have a son who's very artistic. He's not really musically inclined, but that kid can draw. And people ask me, what about him? What, what do you mean, what about him? I, like I said, it's not about Rambo. It's not about Commando. Everybody, everybody's a part of this thing. And I want him to see his art as part of warfare, right? Part of spiritual warfare. Music, music is a gargantuan part of spiritual warfare. Uh, musicians are a central part of this, not a peripheral, a central part. That's why I keep emphasizing this isn't about football. This isn't about getting in a fist fight. Uh, this is about a, what I would call a spiritual ruggedness that is devoid of a fear of, has no fear of man, fear of God, and the fruit of the Spirit with courage-infused gospel-centeredness that just says, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, in the, we're in the battle. We're all in a battle. We all have a different assignment in the battle, a different part to play, but we're all in it. <clears throat> so, I want to leave time for uh, q and I, <clears throat> I want to say one quick thing. I'm going to just take five minutes or so to tell a little bit of testimony about our home, particularly with our boys. 
in August of 2011, my, my two oldest boys are really good baseball players. They're really, really good. And every dad thinks their kids are good. I'm just telling you they're good. And we, uh, we had been playing all these travel teams and tournaments and playing teams from all over the world. And I mean, just, they're just good. <clears throat> but it came to a point at the end of 2011, at the end of August, middle of August in 2011, I, I just was convicted. We were spending too much time and too much money doing this. And you may not be there. I'm not, I, I just want you to know what our family did and how it impacted the way we parent. So what I did is I came home that August, and at that time, really our three oldest kids were the ones that were most prepared to do something like this. And I said, I want you to write down 10 things, 10 things you want to do before you leave the house. A mission trip you want to take, a place you want to see, an animal you want to kill. Just put it down there. Just 10 things you want to do. I'm telling you, I didn't even know how good this was going to be. <clears throat> if you have kids in their early teens, you ought to get them to do it because it'll give you a real window into their heart. You know, if they say, I want to be the Xbox champion, well, you know, you might have something you got to work on, but it'll reveal what's in their heart. Just if they could put anything down, what would they want to do in the next five years before they leave the house? And so it revealed a lot of good things. They brought the list back two days later, and it was good stuff. I mean, Fisher, Fisher put on there he wanted to kill a lion. I mean, that's pretty good. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. That's kind of expensive, but... I just respect him for it, right? You know, he didn't put on there he wanted to hug a poodle or something like that. He wants to kill a lion. But there were mission trips. There were things that were really good. It revealed a lot of good things that I think were going on in their heart at the time. And I had to tell them, every one of them, I said, you know what? Here's the deal. We're not going to be able to do any of these things. Not one of them. Why not? Because right now, all of our discretionary time and our discretionary money is being spent playing baseball. And we've had some good times as a family. Uh, we've had all sorts of fun times in hotels and Picnic lunches at the ballpark. I love the ballpark. My kids love the ballpark. My daughter, my oldest daughter went to the ballpark last April and she got on the field, on the, just got at the park and she said, Dad, don't you just love the smell of a baseball field? I'm like, oh, you are going to be somebody's unbelievable wife. I mean, you're, you're going to have to marry a sports fan or this all, this is a wasted on, on, on this. Uh, <clears throat> she'd rather be at the ballpark than the mall. And so... I said, we're not going to be able to do any of it. And I said, the solution isn't for me to go get an extra job at a convenience store, right? I mean, I'm, I'm doing all I'm going to be doing. So I, 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 we're, we're paid well. This is, this is, we have a limited amount of money, but I don't, think the, I don't think that God's communicating to us, hey, Stinson, go out and get another job, an extra job. It's, no, I've given you enough to do some things. Now, what are you going to do? You got, everybody's got decisions to make, right? And so I said, what would happen if we took a year and a half off of baseball. Now that's a big deal, I gotta tell you. What if we take the entire fall of 2011 off and then the whole year of 2012, what would happen? Because I said, you guys are good. And I think if you're really as good as everybody keeps saying you are, you could take a year off and, make, and, and work your way back in. Well, here's what I could do. I'm almost positive if we took that time off <clears throat> that I could get you three older children into two different countries in one year doing mission trips, and had some other things we wanted to do. You know what the boys said? Let's do it, like immediately. And I was like, whoa, whoa. You know, I was hoping they'd give a little pushback, and then I could say, ah, I don't want to hurt the boys. It was harder for me, i got to tell you, because I'm getting something out of it, right? 
I mean, who, who didn't get something out of it? Hey, whose son is that out there? Hey, mine. Who taught him how to hit like that? What lesson? What, who's your private instructor? Actually, it's me. You know, I mean, that, that, I'm getting something out of this. It's fun to watch. And it's fun to, everybody that has any kids, it's just fun to watch them succeed. It doesn't matter what it is. You just, you just feel good about it. There's nothing technically wrong with that, but it can get to where it's wrong. So, <clears throat> I called one of the coaches, Fishers. I said, hey, I said, look, we're going to take some time off. We're not going to play. It's, it's, not, it's not you, it's us. I mean, it's like I was breaking up with a girlfriend. It's not you, it's me. <clears throat> you know what he said? He said, man. Because I thought he was going to be mad because Fisher is a team changer. I thought he was going to be mad, and he said, you know what? He said, if I went home right now and told my wife and kids that we were going to take a year off of baseball, I'd have the happiest family in Louisville. Called his other coach, told him. He said, man, I'm jealous. I said, well, do you do it too then? Do it. He said, I just can't. I can't do it. One of the, one of the dads on the team, <clears throat> Gunner's team, he said, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried that you're going to deprive Gunner of a of an experience. I said, oh, I'm petrified that I might deprive Gunner of an experience. It's not the one you're thinking about. You're thinking about a, a four-year experience at a college somewhere where he can play baseball. I said, I'm worried that I'm going to deprive him of an experience of understanding the world and believing that there's more, to base, more than baseball out there, and I want him to have a whole view of the whole world. And so we did it. We did it. And we took that whole fall off, didn't even throw a ball. And in 2012, we did what we said we were going to do. We spent, we spent 13 days in Cameroon, in Douala, Cameroon, in Africa. And that's a crazy place. It was dangerous. It was a dangerous trip. And we were in danger the whole time we were there. Because not only were we not wanted there, but <clears throat> we, uh, the street justice is very real there. And we saw a guy right in front of us get killed in the street because this, this group of people thought he stole something. There's no trial. Now, I hope he did steal it or he wasted a, you know, a death. Killed him right there in the street. It was, it, was a, it was a crazy place. Came back from there, went to Central America for eight days, Haiti in the summer, Ukraine, South Korea. It changed our life. It changed my life. It changed my kids' lives. It changed my wife's life. Because there's more out there. There's just more out there. Because I do believe in sports. We still play sports. We just don't, you don't have to play it at the level we were playing it at to get the discipleship qualities out of it. You can pay the $50, get the shirt and the socks and the belt, and play eight games and get out of sports what you need out of it as a dad with your boys and or girls in terms of the discipline and the hard work and the teamwork, all the things that we want to get out of it. You don't have to play it at the highest levels to get out of it what you need. And the fact is, <clears throat> a friend of mine and I, he played at uh, University of Alabama, uh, linebacker, the University of Alabama, we're actually working on a book, and this is the title of the book. It's called, They're Not Going Pro. They're not going pro. You know why? Because they're not going pro. 
There are 7 billion people in the world. 7 billion. And only about 70 or so of them are NFL quarterbacks. Only about 750 of those 7 billion are, are actual Major League Baseball players. Now, there's a farm system, but everybody knows what that farm system's for. The farm system is for, for the 95% of the guys that aren't going to make it so that the guys that are going to make it have somebody to play with so they can get better to make it. The rest of those 95% of those guys are going to, they might go up to double A, single at triple A. They're just eating peanut butter sandwiches and getting a $40 a day per diem riding a bus everywhere so that the guys that really are going to make it have somebody to play with to get better. <clears throat> So, they're not going pro. Even the NCAA, if you watch any NCAA games, especially during football season, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but what do they say? There are 450,000 NCAA athletes, most of whom will go pro in something other than sports. It's their own motto. It's their own motto. Now, I'm not down on college sports, and my oldest son has picked the game back up, <clears throat> and he's really good, and he actually might have a chance to play some college ball. We're not living for it. We're doing it a whole different way. We're not living for it. My other kid's coming up. We're doing it different. You can get out of it what you need in terms of discipleship. So I want to say that to a group of dads because I know the, the whole country is sports crazed. And I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I watch sports all the time. Uh, I, I was fine. Not, I didn't have a TV in my room, but the only thing I missed was not watching some sports, right? So... I love sports, I still do. It's part of our discipleship plan. But I wanted to just share that with you <clears throat> because everywhere I've been, and I don't, you don't have to come up and say this to me, but I, I've heard it enough to where I just, I'm assuming it, even if somebody doesn't tell me. Every time I speak at a, at a conference like this, and I do this a whole lot every year, there'll be two or three dads that'll come up to me and say, I knew, I knew there was a different way to do this. I knew it. Because it's so easy to just get carried away with it, right? So easy to. So that's just a little personal testimony. I think we have on the schedule to do a little Q&A.